And we had another rash of youth suicides in the LGBTQ plus community. So either kiddos who were, were openly LGBTQ plus or were presumed to be uh, were killing themselves because of bullying. And those who weren't were having horrible experiences with family and that kind of thing. And so. And that is the voice of today's guest, Jen O'Ryan. Before we get into Jen's episode and hear more about what she has to say, we wanted to do a couple quick side notes. Uh, Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening. We would love a five-star review and we're doing something special. If you would like a chance to win a free copy, free signed copy of Jen's book, Inclusive AF, make sure to like our social media pages at Diversity on Fire on Instagram and Diversity Fire Facebook. Join the Facebook group at Diversity on Fire Facebook group and screenshot the episode and share on social media. Make sure to tag both us and Jen. Links for that will be in the show notes. We will choose a winner at the end of June. Welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. This is Heather. This is Nina. Inclusive AF, a field guide for accidental diversity experts. That's the name of the book authored by today's guest, Dr. Jen O'Ryan. With a PhD in human behavior, Jen has put a lifetime of experience into practice, into a practical guide for others. In addition to authoring this amazing book, Jen is also a speaker and the founder of Double Tall Consulting. Double Tall provides project-based consulting with a focus on strategy, design, and implementation of inclusion and diversity programs. We are so excited. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, there are so many questions that we have. (laughs) So many. (laughs) Yeah. So super glad to have you on the show today. And one of the things that we like to do on the podcast is just to get to know you as a person. And so before we kind of go into your experience and your expertise, can you just tell us a little bit about you personally, some of the key factors that led you to become the champion of diversity and inclusion, inclusion, conclusion, but you know, basically what made you into who you are? Can you take us through a little bit of that journey? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I grew up uh, in the greater Seattle area. I'm from here originally. And of course, what you do is, is go into tech. So <laughs> I started working, uh, after doing some contracting in the Southwest, I started working for a large tech company on, on the east side of the bridge in Bellevue. And that's where I found the concept of, um, accidental experts. So people would get tasked with something and they'd have to very quickly become an expert on that. And then when I moved to consulting, it became even more so I'd get dropped into a situation, have to ramp up very quickly and, you know, do all the anthropology tasks of going through and seeing how they, the organization got where they are today. And alongside of that, I always knew that I wanted to do something to give back. So I've always been fascinated by human behavior and how human beings interact with each other. And so I decided to go for my PhD in human behavior. And I was about halfway through the program and I didn't know what I was going to focus my dissertation on. And we had another rash of youth suicides in the LGBTQ plus community. So either kiddos who were, were openly LGBTQ plus or were presumed to be 
uh, were killing themselves because of bullying. And those who weren't were having horrible experiences with family and that kind of thing. And so it crystallized for me. I put on my research hat and went to go see what the literature said. And almost all of the existing research at that time positioned being LGBTQ plus as a risk factor in and of itself. So if you're growing up as a queer kiddo, you were automatically at risk for these things. And I realized that that's, we were looking at it the wrong way. And so I wanted to look at the the influence of the environment on the kiddos. Um, so basically our, quick, our queer kiddos are fine. It's the environmental response to them that, that kind of exacerbates or mitigates that risk. And that's exactly what my dissertation research demonstrated. And so that got me into the sense of if you if you have one person in your life that can change the entire trajectory and really mitigate a lot of risk for these negative outcomes that we see later in life. And it's because as human beings, we tend to do things that we do as children. We just replicate that over and over. Um, so it's very much the organizational behaviors that you see as adults, you also see expressed in youth. And so that's, um, I, I saw organizations that were doing inclusion and diversity training, and I, they were looking at it really from a top down like, let's get some positive messages in the cafe and let's have the executive leadership say something awesome and everything will just fall into place. And it's like, no, you really need, it's, it's really the lived experience of the individuals and how we interact with each other daily and how we perceive the world that really shapes an inclusive culture. And so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how you say perceive the world, because one other thing about you is that you are a travel enthusiast, which is something that you share in common with Nina and I. And I think that part of it is really important for, I'm not, I'm just speculating as to why you love travel. Maybe there's a lot of reasons, but I think immersion and being in different, putting yourself in different positions allows you to accept, respect things and people that are different than you on such a broad level. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. Yeah. I've been really fortunate and able to travel in my personal and professional life. And that's exactly it because our first thought is like, we're our, we're our own threshold for normal right? So what I grew up in, that's normal and everything else is weird or different or confusing. And so, yeah, if you're the only person in the country that looks or in, in the town that looks like you, or you're the only person who doesn't speak another language, that, that causes your brain to adapt and say, oh yeah, there's different ways of being and different ways of, you know, it's not a force of nature that we walk down the street on the right-hand side because not everybody does that. Right. It's really easy to get trapped in that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you, when you, Wrapping the travel portion into what you mentioned earlier, because basically the concept of talking at people instead of talking to people. So if you don't get to a point where you're understanding people at a fundamental level, then you're just expressing what you perceive they want to hear, as opposed to taking the time to to really get to know what their issues are. So when you say that LGBTQ itself is looked at a risk factor, that's the way I always perceived it. I never thought mm -hmm. about the fact that even though in my own experience, I know different. So it's interesting how sometimes even if we have an experience that we can relate to it, we still can't see past our own part of that, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And that's one of the reasons that I love conversations like this. And I love podcasts like this because it's all about humanizing, right? It's like I can throw statistics out all day long and people don't relate to that. People relate to humaning. And one of the cool things I found about travel, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is it strips away a lot of the assumptions. So you know, if I'm walking down the street, it's just a human tendency to kind of make up stories and narratives about people based on what they look like at that specific moment in time, right? And if you're taken outside of that, and you're really looking at, at things through a new lens, um, because those filters are gone, then you really sit down and you're like, we actually have way more in common 
then then we don't. And so just talking about, you know, shared love of coffee or, you know, a shared hatred of avocados or something like that. And so that that starts the conversation too. Well, now let's talk about things we don't agree so much with. We've definitely had experience with that. And I think that some people who travel uh, don't take that opportunity, which I just find sad. Um, but I think there's so much opportunity in that. It's just really get curious. And that's when you realize like, okay, so you're, you experience things in a different way than me, but your response to those experiences are similar to how I would experience respond to something that you wouldn't be, you know, so used to. So Mm -hmm. I love that. You actually, um, in the book, you had a section where you talked about the error that we come to in focusing on numbers. The specific quote, which I love, is numbers are surprisingly easy to tweak. Um, Humans are squishy and difficult to quantify. (laughs) 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 So I'm wondering how you, as a self-proclaimed data geek, like, how did you find a way to humanize the data in order to affect change? That is such a good question. It, it's really been, um, so most of my work leading up to this has been, okay, so we know how many times something happens. We know how many times, you know, through data, we can tell how many times something happens and we can look at the, the profile of where it happens, but we don't understand what the person experienced when it was happening or what the person experienced le- leading up to that what was happening. And so to me, it was more of, okay, so if we're looking at data, let's go back to the lived experience and see what, um, how the people are describing it and how they feel about it and how they feel about it in that moment. Because we can sit in a conference room, the three of us, you know, with two other humans and everybody experiences that meeting differently. And it's all based on what we know about the organization and the people, but also where do we come from? Like, what's our origin story? Um, and that's where we need to really get beyond, um, okay, well, our organizational health score was 3.5 and now it's 5.7, which is better. So we're doing better. <laughs> it's like, mm, no, not so much. Maybe you have attrition rates. Maybe people aren't responding to the survey. Like there's so many other things that you need to peel back and, and see what's going on. And so that's why I do, I do caution people. I'm like, I, as you said, I'm a data geek. I love to measure things into oblivion, but it's going to be mixed measures or mixed methods at best because you've got to figure out what's going on in the day to day. Yeah. I I was going to say, I love that because now that you say that, so like my like business brain just told me, so it's like when unemployment decreases, but really it's because people have stopped searching and not because the mm-hmm. situation's gotten any better. So um, I always come back to this, which I hate because I know that people don't always understand it, but kind of the concept of Lean Six Sigma. But um, so kind of stripping things down to like their most basic premise. When you started your research, how did you kind of utilize that concept? Or if you want to express it in a different term, of course. It really was looking at exactly what you're talking about, the, the methodology, the questions that are being asked um, and, and who's asking them. And who who is being asked? Like it, all of that factors in. So if, I'm a huge fan of participatory research, which actually puts the person in having the lived experience as that position of expert, and then the researchers coming very humbly to learn from them. And I think I think that's absolutely critical because especially in DEI, we put so much pressure on. Okay, employees need to respond, and employees in in these typically marginalized populations need to bear the emotional labor of telling us what's happening. And to an extent we need that lived experience and we need that, that candor and that information, but it can't just be, okay, tell us what's wrong. We'll go make our own decisions based on our worldview and what's really most convenient to the organization. And then we'll roll something out and you'll just be the recipient of it, whoever's responding to that. And so it really is 
taking a step back and realizing these are humans. It's that, oh, there's a, there's a word, Sonder, that I love. And it is the, the realization that everybody you will ever encounter has a life just as rich and complicated as your own. And I think if we go into, you know, research and, and data analysis through that lens, it really keeps us from getting, oh, this person's just complaining or this person's in HR. So what they really mean is this and looking at the words themselves in the situation. And it's hard, it's really hard because we just, we filter. That's all we, that our brain wants to, you know, save energy. That is, oh, I, I like that a lot because I, now I'm thinking about it. It's, it's similar, well, similar, but also different to the concept of um, the saying, you know, we're all doing the best we can in this moment. That has been such a hard concept for me to wrap my head around. And mm -hmm. I still have to work through it because I, you know, it's, we're so judgmental as humans. It's just how it works. We have to challenge our biases. We have to challenge ourselves because we look at someone that is not doing the same as us necessarily. And we know how hard we're working. And so it's really easy to be like, well, just work harder. But yeah, but we don't know all of the inner workings of what else is going on with them. So I love that concept. Yeah, I love it. Well, especially if you look at organizations where, you know, there's so much um, invisible diversity. So if you have a bullying situation or toxic work environment, but people at the table might be veterans with PTSD, or they might be survivors of domestic violence, or they might be in a violent situation at home, like all those factors it, they're hardwired to keep us safe. And that's what we fall back to when we're frightened or threatened or uncomfortable. And so if I think if more people leaders and, and policy influencers could take that into account when they're evaluating what's really going on in the workplace, you have no idea who, who this story is. You know what I think that when you say that, going back to what we were all talking about earlier is when you're traveling and you're immersing yourself, you are not able to reduce people to the most common denominator. <laughs> That yeah. is such a fantastic way to express it. Yep. Because I just realized when you're saying that you take us out of the equation. So, you know, and part of what Heather was saying is that we are always in, in you as well with the energy, right? The brain energy. So you're always trying to classify things just so that you can figure out how to move through it faster. And it's, it is subconscious because that's just part of our experience as humans. But when you can't reduce people because the situation doesn't allow for that, you know, and I think that's why I definitely know that's why we love travel. It does force you out, right? It forces you out to expand um, your mindset. And so really what you're basically telling us is we have to learn how to not reduce people just in normal everyday encounters also. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, like I said, that's such an amazing way to express it because that's exactly it. We're reducing them because so that we can, so that we can put them in a convenient category for us and move along with life to whatever that next thing is. Yeah. It's, it, it's such, I mean, I, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the term mindfulness gets, gets a bad rap and it's kind of overused and people think, Oh, it's woo woo. And we don't have time for that. This is a business, but really it is. It's, it's, calling yourself out and noticing when you're starting to do that and interrupting it just like you would any other bad habit. Except this bad habit has really damaging, potential damaging implications to other humans. So I don't want to, you know, lessen it to like, and like, oh, you should quit smoking. Oh, you should stop being biased. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the same, but, um, but you have to interrupt those thought patterns. You know, this ties very clearly into what um, kind of the next topic that I want to go into was, is the programming that we have. That's really easy. So a little, kind of uh, an unveiling of myself, I created your intro and I kept wanting to put she. Now I believe, uh, based on what I know, that your pronouns are she, her. 
um, based on your website. However, after coming out of reading your book, I'm like, let me just put this to this. And I had to keep checking myself in order to create something that was more inclusive. And at the end of the day, I don't think it necessarily sounds any different than it would have if I put she or her in there. So Mm -hmm. the question is, how do we reconcile the dismantling of gender norms? Because we are so programmed to have that in our mind. And of course, there's a, there's massive shifts going on. But how do we how do we reconcile that, especially when we have the constant arguments that are like, well, science says we, we can have a whole hour conversation on what science says. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you, the three of us would just geek out on that forever. Um, yeah, it, it is. It is. And it's it's our language is one of the first things that that helps us connect with other people other than like eye contact and touch. Um, that's how we that's how we build our community and it's very important to our survival. Um, and so the words that we learn early on, we tend to just keep using those over and over, even if we're given new information, just because it's easier. And it's difficult to unlearn that. So um, when they became more mainstream and, and, and uh, more, I don't like the word mainstream, but you know what I mean, more, more commonly understood uh, outside of the community, people were cringing because grammatically that's not what we've been taught. And it's like, yes, but we have to continue to learn. We have to continue. We have this amazing capacity for vocabulary and we need to be able to adapt. And one of my one of my colleagues so eloquently put it as, uh, if someone can learn, learn five different words to order their coffee, they can learn a new pronoun. And I'm like, yeah, it's all about what's important to you. <laughs> and, um, but it, it's honestly, it's practice. It's, it's practicing they, them. It's practicing, you know, when, exactly when the, when the, Gender is immaterial or it's not known or not knowable uh, and saying it out loud because that's what rewires our brains to adopt this this different term that we've not been using traditionally. I don't say new because it's been around forever, but I I totally agree with that because I will say flatly that this is something that I personally have struggled with and struggle in a sense that um I bristle sometimes at the fact that because I struggle with that, for example, like the the grammar part because my mom was so concerned about how we spoke and that was a function of my race also right so just how i presented and it had to be educational and it had to and it had to be as had to da, 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 but as sophisticated as possible and so i realized that that's part of my story i'm still working through that but I'm going to throw out an example for you. So mentally, I kind of come to this situation where I'm like, well, okay, so what about, for example, when we are describing somebody, for example, I, I hate to use this example right now, but, you know, like a police officer, if there's a suspect, well, if, if we're not picking a gender, like male or female, how are we getting to a point where we're reducing people? But I mean... Figuring something out. So I used to explain to my friends that when they told a story about a big, scary black guy, the reason the problem was them using the big, scary black guy is because they were using black as a way to increase the fear level of the conversation. However, it was okay when there's only one black person over there to say the black person, because that's the most clear indication of who they are comparatively. And so how... You know, in this gender norm situation that we're all trying to navigate, what do you say to things like that and to people like me who think in in those kind of parameters as opposed to just a straight up bias or, you know, bigotry type of, you know, reaction? Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting because, yeah, if, if the term, if, if the descriptive term is used to weaponize, 
or to elicit some kind of response to get a different reaction, then yeah, that's where you absolutely want to interrupt that. Um, what I guide people to, it's it's almost like, um, so using the the description of a police officer, the, the scenario, if it's, if it's a catastrophic emergency and your brain goes to, uh, it was a man, hit my car, uh, ran over my foot, and now I'm laying in the street. Like, that's okay, because that's, you know what I mean? It's all gradient. But if you're describing somebody, you're like, you can actually say, oh, yeah, I saw this person. Um, they were about five foot eight, masculine looking, stocky build. And that's just built into a description. And so it, it, it for me, it comes down to what is the what is the end goal? If I'm trying to describe somebody to somebody else, I don't necessarily say need to say, oh, it was a man who looks like this. It could be someone who looked very feminine, was about my height and build, wearing cute shoes. I don't know, something like that. But it's 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 going into it just being a little bit more precise around what is it we're describing and why. Like like a really good I was I was totally at uh, at a grocery store and I, I made this huge mistake of calling somebody ma'am and it's like uh, I should know better. But if we're talking about a, a checkout clerk or somebody who works in a shop, we can just say, oh, that person over there in the blouse or that person over there with a hat. Like we can we can take so many things out of that because in that sense, as you said, it's easy to identify who we're talking about. I think we get comfortable, especially and I'm going to bring this term up because I finally fully understand what it means. I've heard it so much, but I never actually went and looked, but you actually define it in the back of your book. Cisgender. I was like, OK, there's another one that I need to know. It just means... <laughs> It just means, for anyone listening who has heard that term, it just means that I was born female and I accept that. I accept that, essentially. Uh, is that a good description? Yeah, it's basically the gender that you were assigned at birth. So mm -hmm. there's a typically just a quick visual observation and you're signed male or female. And then um, if, if, if your innate sense of who you are and your gender is aligned with what you were assigned at birth, then that would then that's cisgender. Well, and I would generally say that that's the case. I think that's mostly the case. It's just that's how I was raised. Although I will say I like building things and I know how to fix things more than some of the guys I dated, which sometimes has been called into question, but it, whatever, no big deal. But I, I think the point that I was going for here is that labels can be, I don't like labels either. I think that that they make things helpful sometimes, but then we're, we're using them as a crutch at the same time. So for me, I'm going to go around in circles here for a second. Point I was going to make is that I was thinking about how I can change my, in my business, my signature and my email. Like, should I put she, her? Like, because I do want to support. I don't feel like I need to as a person, but I do want to show support. And I got a little like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. So there's this weird interaction with, I have no problem with what you want to be called. I'll call you whatever you want. No problem at all. I will accept you for who you are. But there's almost like, almost like what Nino is saying is almost like I have a aversion to changing what I think I am. Mm, mm. That's so interesting though, because it, it really is just, it's naming who you are yeah. and putting it out there. Yeah. Yeah. So did but you, I, did you sit with that for a while? Did you have any epiphanies? Like which, which I need to know, which way did you go? Did you add it? I haven't added it yet. No. And it's not because I decided not to in any way. It's just, I literally started thinking about just changing my email signature a, a couple days ago. So, <laughs> so it's just, it's still, it's still new. I will say the one thing that I did change and I didn't actually intentionally change it. I think it just happened subconsciously. I probably made a mistake at one point and that's probably why it happened. But when I do work with my clients, and I do what I would say enrollments, they can include their spouse on what we're doing. And so I have now changed with, if I'm talking to a female, I no longer say, do you want to include your husband? I say spouse because mm -hmm. I, again, I think I might've messed it up, 
And then I'm like, oh boy, I don't want to do that again. You know what I mean? Because it's the truth. Your spouse doesn't have to be a male or female. So that is something that I have changed. Yeah. And it is those small incremental aha moments. And I actually had one person ask me um, about adding the pronouns in an email signature because they felt like it might be appropriation to a certain extent. I'm like, that's a really good, yes, that's a really good thought. I totally see that. My my perception is that it's everybody has pronouns. And I think it does a couple things. One, it lets people know what your pronouns are. And two, it does spark those conversations around why do you have that in there? And what does that mean? Um, it's almost like and it, this is where it became really overwhelming, right? Because we want to dismantle the gender binary, but we also, we can't take on the entire structure of our world, right? We can't, we can't fix everything. And so it is that balance between how do we have these micro person to person conversations and, and, and changing the world one pronoun at a time. And then how do we do the macro and, and how do those two tie into each other? Right. Cause it won't work. It won't work with just one. And so that's where, especially around gender is that if the, the closer the person is to you, the, the closer you have that relationship and the, the better that you know them, that's where it really comes into an importance of, you know, sharing your pronouns, understanding their pronouns, being respectful, challenging other people and calling them out if they're not using correct name and pronouns, that kind of thing. And that's where I, I think it sends out the splash ripple, right? And then we have some social forcing functions. Like I want to say it's 17 or 18 states now have a gender non-specific identifier on their state IDs and driver's licenses. And so that's kind of forced the conversation of, okay, well, now we have to have systems that will naturally accommodate this new data point. And, you know, and then how do we, how do individuals want to be referred and, and how, how do they want us to refer to them? I think that's key. Yeah. Is I've heard a lot of people um, just putting out their complaints of like, kind of like what I said, but they're actually complaining that someone else wants to be called something different. Not me saying that I feel weird about adding it. They're saying that they have a problem calling someone something different. I don't get that. That I don't get. Because I don't understand why that should matter. If somebody wants to be called a certain thing, we don't necessarily know that. So I don't I don't agree with someone being expected to know. But like you said, if they have told you that, then now you know. If that is your friend specifically or family member, you definitely know. So why not just do that? I know in your consulting, you, you brought up that a lot of times when you come in, you come in when things aren't working or that when they're going badly and they're like, Jen, help us <laughs> fix this, you know? <laughs> so yeah. how do you how do you get beyond things like that? Disrupting disruptors, I should say, that that just refuse to change even though there's no reason why they can't. Yeah, and that's a really difficult situation. And not just in organizations, but in community, in vol- volunteer settings and schools, everywhere. Um, everybody's at a different place and everybody has a different understanding. And it goes back to those early messages. So, and and being your own no- normal, right, barometer, there's a huge spectrum. So I think I outlined in the book that there's this huge spectrum where you've got champions and advocates over here. We're just all about it. They're all in, they're advocating, they're showing up for each other's fights or supporting everybody. And then you've got people on the other end that are resistors and for whatever reason, will just never be able to incorporate this new information and just can't can't change. But in the middle, you've got what I call the ambivalence. So people who have, for whatever reason, never had to think about their the color of their skin or their gender or their socioeconomic status or having a criminal record, or they've never had to think about what this population has to think about every day. And so once they have that new piece of information, and I, actually, I just forgot to mention this, all of those different people, all of those different segments of the population can be one person, right? Because we're never just one thing. And so it's getting information out to the people who have never had to think about it 
and bringing them along. And that starts to build this, you know, swirl, this, this whirlpool of, um, of change and culture change and internalized culture change, which is critical. And the resistant people will either come along with it or they won't. And the truth of it is we can't, we can't save everybody. Not everyone's going to come along for the, for the journey, but you deal with that uh, as you have to. But I, I think it's just calling each other out and making it very visible and very vocal. And this is where I, I always encourage people. I'm like, don't underestimate your ability to change the world. If you are, if you see something and you stop and film it, interrupt it, use the privilege and the position that you have to advocate, um, do it because that's, that's what changes the world. Right. And it, it actually makes it easier for other people to, to do that as well. And pretty soon you've got, you know, a, a line of people, advocating for the same change and vocalizing it. And that makes such a huge difference. I know that in this particular situation, I'm probably falling more into the ambivalent category, um, meaning that I have no concern about, you know, what other people do. And also I'm very much an advocate for people having rights and not having their rights utilized, but sometimes part of it, they can take it or leave it. So with Heather, sometimes what I feel and, um, like the, 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 she, her, because I've thought about this too. I resist it because I resist having to like, have to explain myself any further. And once again, that could be a product of my own, always having to like identify who I was and, and have gotten to a point where I resent it to some degree. So, so I look at it. And so it's not really from, you know, it's not from a disrespect angle, but it's like, I don't want to keep having to prove who I am to other people. I don't feel the need to do so. And then having that maybe misunderstood. So just even how I present that and kind of addressing that in general, you have mentioned key elements in developing awareness for problems is just understanding as people where we come from, how we're not seeing other people. Can you share with us how to you know, expand that idea about not seeing other people for who and what they are. Yeah. And that's, I think it goes back in large parts to what we, what we expect people to be based on our understanding of our interpretation of their appearance in that moment. And it, it, it comes down to, you don't, you don't have any idea who you're sitting across the table from or who you're sitting next to in a coffee shop and making assumptions about that and, and kind of filtering your language so that they are more comfortable is is mentally exhausting, right? To your point, yes, not having to explain yourself. Um, it's it's almost like the the message speaks louder than any one individual action, right? So if 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 you're one of the, on the on the champion in the spectrum, and and everybody's you know you're doing you're doing the work and you're doing what you can and you're doing where where you feel called, then then that's going to signal louder than oh, but they don't have their pronouns in the auto seg. Do you know what I mean? That's where it gets to the point of what is the overall message rather than this one thing that you don't, it, it absolutely should be an opt-in um, because it's not, it's not for everybody. In that same regard though, I think, so I'm thinking about it. Um, we have a, a former guest on the show who's actually um, with us again this month for an episode. And in his, he has a podcast as well. And in his podcast, he uses, he said, you know, he introduces himself and he said, my pronouns are he, him, his. And so when I was talking to him once, I asked him why he did that. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'll tell you why I asked him. It's because he had mentioned having a girlfriend. He presents as male. And he said, um, he explained that he's actually part of the uh, LGBTQ community. And even though he doesn't necessarily feel for him that he needs to do it, he mm -hmm. does think it's important to show support. 
and he wants to normalize it. And so that would be for me to do it. I think that's what, that's the reason I would is because I do think, because Nina, what you're saying, because this can be applied to every change that ever has happened and will continue to happen. We have resistance if it doesn't affect us. But what you're saying is you shouldn't have to explain yourself and you're right, you shouldn't, but neither should they. And so if we can normalize it and make it to the point where you can stop explaining yourself someday and therefore someone else can too, then maybe that's that's the point. Am I going in circles or does that make sense? No, it makes sense. It almost, to me, it feels like, um, yeah, If and when I use the term, if you have it available to you, that's like everything from all your experiences growing up, everything that you have available to you physically, mentally, emotionally, like what I have available to me right now could be very different three days from now, right? So what I have available to me right now, then I'm going to use what I have to to advocate this cause. But it's also similar to disclosing different aspects of my my life and my personality and who I am outside of a, a context, right? So coming up, and this is not not to equate at all, but coming up in a very very male dominated tech space, I very rarely disclose that I had a kiddo because as a parent and as a woman who was a parent in tech, that typically puts me in a very specific category that you can't get out of. And then there's all the assumptions. Oh, you must be really good at planning birthday parties. Oh, you must be really, really good at this. And it's like, no, actually I'm horrible at it. <laughs> you can ask my son, he will tell you. <laughs> and so it wasn't necessarily that I didn't feel like, you know, I, I couldn't share it. It just that that would in that in that context would be a defining characteristic for me. If I'm at a networking event or my at a coffee shop, then yes, I may feel like disclosing that. But that's where it becomes very personal aspect of your identity. And it, it also should never be um, required or expected. Okay, and so maybe that's so. Here's and then just relating this to race because I love having this conversation with you um, in the sense that like I'm coming from a different angle, but I, I understand the concept. So what I'm thinking in this is that you're, that, that you're saying it shouldn't be put upon. So sometimes when I'm talking to allies, you know, race allies in that discussion, I try not to put too much expectations on people because one of the things I see in that fight is that sometimes people on my side just expect what I feel is too much. They want to put so much burden on uh, an ally or an advocate that it becomes detrimental. And I feel like we're going to lose a a population that's really with us, but they're not perfect, right on paper. And so sometimes that's what I feel like as far as being an ally in this fight sometimes is that I still have my own issues that I'm working through in that process. And when I feel like I'm being put upon because I'm not falling immediately into whatever expectation they have, then the whole concept of everything else I believe in that fights disregarded feels problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love these conversations because it's, I don't know if safe space is the word to use because we curate it, but it gives us an opportunity to put out there some of the things that we're thinking that most likely a lot of other people are thinking. And honestly, every single time we talk to somebody, we learn. So, so appreciative if you've taken the time to actually talk to us. I, I on this note of acceptance. I have a question. Um, You had in your book, you shared they're peppered in some stories, some personal stories from people. And one of them struck me because it's something I've always wondered about. And it was uh, someone that was in the LGBT community and had previously been married to, um, I hope I don't get this wrong, previously been married to a female, now married to a male, Mm -hmm. um, female presenting, I assume. And they would go out to LGBTQ events 
but wouldn't necessarily disclose some of those parts be- or the the um part where she was married to a, a female because now she was married to a male and there might be some sort of rejection there. Like she wasn't mm-hmm. really enough of one or the other. Is and that's something that I've heard before. How do you understand that? Yeah, and that's 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 a constant struggle. And it is part of the continual risk reward conversation that you have to have with yourself before figuring out what what do you disclose and what don't you disclose? Because once once it's out, you know, no pun intended, once you're out, you're out. And that can be construed even within the community in so many different ways. And there is there is that uh, change fatigue meaning that you were speaking to where it's like, if I have to learn one more pronoun, I am going to just lock myself away forever because I can't because it's that it's that so much change and, and so much expectation as you know, if you're in the community, you're supposed to represent and, and, and do all these other things and advocate. And at a certain point, you just get tired and you get tired of things not changing and you get tired of all the backlash, right? Yeah. So it is really difficult to figure out how you're going to show up and who you're going to be in that space. And then figuring out, okay, if I'm not coming out, what do I, how do I say this and how do I position what I did last weekend and and all of that. And I, I would love for us to get to the place where people don't have to worry about that as much. And I think part of that goes to that stop assuming who you're talking to because you have no idea the backstory. But um, yeah, I, I've seen, um, I was actually working with an employee resource group uh, in the LGBT community and they had an event and they were handing out, you know, lanyards like the, the, for your badge. And a woman came in, a little bit older woman, and they automatically handed her an ally lanyard. And, and it's like, this, these are people who live and breathe inclusion and diversity. And the, the automatic assumption was, oh, you're a woman, you're here, you're an ally. And you just, you, you get, um, advised that that is not correct enough and and they'll start to shift but it just it, we're, it's so ingrained we have to be so conscious about it and there's also this sense of you know um we love we love the categories and binary and so there's gay straight but those aren't the only two ways of being right you can be lesbian bisexual pansexual demisexual asexual uh, there's so many different ways of expressing this very complex uniquely human experience that it's just like just let's just stop trying to figure out who people are. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that I've been considering too. So, you know, as people of color, we're not a monolith, right? Or as women, mm-hmm. we're not a monolith or, um, you know, whatever your sexuality is, which is also different from, so we talk about gender versus sexuality, which are two distinct conversations and they're not a monolith. Is there... In the LGBTQ plus community, is there, has there been any kind of friction between those two identities? Um, or is that something that is accepted as a whole? Or is there, because, because we do tend to just put that whole community in one bag and we're not really seeing that there's really a whole bunch of different vectors in, in people and how they present and who they love. And does any of it even matter? And if so, how does it matter and in in which ways matter? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is, because there's so many, there's so many, you're exactly right. So I, and this is one of the things I I like to break out for people is we've got this LGBTQ plus, which is not, as you said, a monolith, but it's also even breaking it down to like transgender, but transgender is only one gender, right? Um, Then we also have all these other gender diverse options and gender fluid. And I don't want to say options. That's a poorly chosen word. Please don't listen to that word. Um, Again, brain shortcuts. 
Um, but we have all these different ways of being and there is going to be some kind of friction because we're always looking at it through not just, you know, we've got this segment of the population, but all the other factors that led up to, you know, their experience in being here today. So everything they learned about what it meant to be queer, everything they meant, what, what it learned to be a person of color, black, it's all factors into that. And so, yeah, we've got, you know, this community, we've got the segment of the population, but then we've got all the other intersectionalities that factor into that. And one of the drawbacks that happens in that is that we look at research that's around, you know, um, the increased rates of substance abuse and homelessness, for example. The research there is done at an LGBTQ plus umbrella, sometimes just an LB, LGB umbrella. Uh, but the problem is, is that once you get down below those statistics, there's a disparate impact. If you're if you're transgender, you are at much higher rates than um somebody who is a white, gay, cisgender man who lives in a more affluent community. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's that mixing that not only causes tension between the members of the community, you think maybe this one's got it all figured out over here, and so we should be focusing on this group over here, or not understanding why the millennials had to invent a new gender. You know, that's, that's something that happens with older generations that are like, can't we just have one? <laughs> Um, so yeah, it, it is a constant, it's a constant conversation and discussion and, and finding common ground. And that's one of the reasons why I think like we do have like BIPOC and we have LGBTQ plus, and that is a way to get people outside of those communities to grok who it is we're talking about. Um, but I think it also is a huge blurring. Yeah. You talked about that a lot and I know uh, we're kind of running close on time. I think we could talk so much more about that because I have so many questions because you mentioned the whole, it, it's, it's about the labels, right? It is, it's useful mm -hmm. to get started, but we need to not focus on the idea that it is all encompassing or that it's a one and done. We can't just slap a tag on it and say, there, now I know. It just doesn't work that way. But I wanted to ask you, so do you have anything that you would, that you're super passionate about, super excited about, any projects that you're working on or anything that you want to promote or share with everybody? Sorry, I just put you on the spot. <laughs> no, 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 that's totally fine. So I am actually, I'm actually working on the sequel to the book. Yay! Which <laughs> I know it's like, ew. my husband's like, oh, really, do we have, we just did one, do we? <laughs> so, um, but no, so I'm working on the sequel and it's because the, so I worked on the book for about 18 months before it launched. It launched um, September of last year. And so obviously last year was very eventful and had some things occurring. And I actually stripped out a lot of the book because I wanted people to be able to take this and use it not only in organizational inclusion and diversity, LGBTQ plus humans, but actually take this and go into their community and go into their, their book clubs and their friend circles and whoever they have access to and say, we can actually change things like just us here on, on, in this six block radius. Right. Um, and how to talk about it, how, how to bring other people along. And so I took a lot of the, um, content around, you know, talking about all things gender and breaking down into more detail around that um, and some more practical applications. And I put in more go do good things now <laughs> content. So I am really hoping to have that out before the end of the year. But yeah, that's what's coming next. And I would love to hear if there's anything you would love to learn about that you think should be included in the next one. I would love to hear that as well. Put it on Audible. Oh, <laughs> Nina, Nina, <laughs> Nina has a hard time with actually the, the reading part of the reading books. I'm not picking on you. She just likes to hear them. It's just easier. I, I would love to do an audiobook. I have not found the right person to it to do it. But yeah, that's next. Well, yeah. I mean, it just came out in September, so <laughs> no rush. <laughs> so at the end, we like to ask, what what is the one thing that you wish more people knew 
about the way inclusivity impacts everybody. So rather than thinking about it as just affecting one specific group, how does it impact everybody? Oh, it's, yeah, the research demonstrates that if you have inclusive and healthy workplaces, it it increases everybody's engagement, productivity, tenure, retention. I mean, I, I was liking it back to um, adolescence and, and, and childhood, right? Because we replicate these over and over. So for schools that have comprehensive enumerated policies around anti-bullying, anti-discrimination, they're cultivating these inclusive workplaces. Everybody benefits on every measurable metric. Everybody benefits because it's just a healthy place that you can express and challenge. Um, and so I would I would want people to understand that it's not just a policy. It's every daily, every daily interaction at every life cycle of the employee or the client or the patient or the student that influence, influences it. It's 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 an intentional action and it's a daily practice. And don't ever underestimate your ability to change the world as a person. Amen to that. And you know, it's funny you say that because what you're saying is that it's just kind of coming to the forefront that this is a situation, but really we have known that for years because that's the concept and the premise that they base college campuses on is intentionally diversifying them because they have found that it's a much more productive atmosphere. Why do you think that that's been something that schools have understood, but hasn't really filtered through to the workplace? Has that been intentional or do you just think that it just wasn't valued as real in terms of the concept? I I think it wasn't valued as real. I think for too long, it's been seen as an HR conversation. And so it's something that recruiters will focus on and HR will focus on and marketing teams will focus on. But I don't think they really get that it's, it, it is that interpersonal experience. And it is that, you know, that day to day. And it's also, it's also um, demonstrating that, you know, how can you, how can you, how are, how are teams when they work together? How do they challenge each other? Because we always see um, there's a lot of talk around group fit. And that's where we see a lot of people who don't look like the majority of the people in the company. Oh, they're not a good fit. So we're not going to hire them. And it really should be, we want them to to challenge our assumptions. We want them to bring new perspectives and that's why they're here. And that's how we elevate their voices. And that's how we allow, you know, um, people to disagree actively in a healthy way. I, I think it's a, it's a lot of work and it's so much easier. Oh, if we, like if we were sitting here talking about, you know, data geekery for hours, we could just riff on that all day long happily, but that's not going to get us to the place we need to be for diversity <laughs> inclusion. We need people who don't agree with us. Um, a very deep level don't agree with us and have those conversations and figure out how do we get to the right solution and bring people on board. That's true. I mean, so I, as soon as you said that my thought process is what happened to IBM in the nineties, but they excluded a bunch of people and then they couldn't pivot because they didn't have any diversity of thought. And so then their business tanked because they had limited their, their structure too much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an excellent point because they just assumed that everything would go on the way that it always has. What is one small, we want it to be small because we want people to actually do it, but what is one small action that we can all, you know, Nina and I, all all the people listening can take today to be more inclusive? Mm, I love that because small doesn't necessarily mean not impactful. Right. Um, the language that we use, it, it really is because that that not only tells us how we interpret ourselves in the world, but how other people should interact with us. And so, and it's not just about, it's not limited to only gender. It's, you know, are you using terms that are exclusive? Like I'm going to use, you know, he, she as an example, but it really is beyond that. It's like, are you using outdated expressions that are excluding people? Are you asking yourself? So if you're on a virtual call with your, with your team 
and everybody looks exactly like you, are you asking who's not in the room? And and how do we bring other people in the room without objectifying and tokenizing them? Like how do we genuinely reach out and not just, oh, look, we need some more of X person and, and this this to make our team diverse, but actually building relationships with organizations that don't look like yours and, and, and with other groups of people who don't look like you and come from very different backgrounds. And again, this goes all the way out to not just the observable, but also um, socioeconomic and things like that. Where did they go to college? Did they go to college? They didn't go to college. That's okay too. Um, and, and bringing them into the forefront. Okay. So I'm going to narrow it down even further for you real quick. So you had said earlier in the conversation about when you accidentally called a person ma'am, ma'am is a signature part of like how I talk to people. I don't know. It's, it's thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. All the time. Once again, part of how I was raised. So if we're talking about something simple like that, how would you advise me to adjust that part of my, you know, public interaction? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. I actually get that a lot because it's so ingrained in in different, especially like military families and, and South and things like that. So I always take a step back and go back to the travel because it I might be doing something or saying something that I think is showing respect to them. But if in their world, it's disrespectful, then I'm not doing them any favors. And I'm, you know what I mean? Um, and so I just caution people. I'm like, if you don't know, if you know them, obviously it's in your community or something like that, then yes. Uh, but if you don't know, then just break the habit and, and just find another gender non-specific term to use. I mean, in my case, I don't, I don't like ma'am just because I'm old and you know, <laughs> like it's like oh, I am old. Um, but it, but it really is like I don't want to accidentally misgender somebody, and so it's just becoming more cognizant of. Do I even need to say anything? Can I just say thank you so much or good morning or something else? So in weird situations, you can just strip the title and, you know, hi, how are you? Rather than hi, ma'am, how are you? Or it, it makes me feel old too. So I just. It, it, and it's so fascinating because so many languages have like a formal and an informal. And that to me is a good practice to have. So if it's, you know, in French, um, they have a formal for you and then a different you that we would use amongst ourselves. And it's almost like that. Like if, if you don't know, then err on the side of caution, gender non-specific, gender neutral terms. But then if you do know or it's in your community or your social circle and you're comfortable, then yes, absolutely you should do that. And again, this is a this is a guidance. This is um if we're looking at the scale of so many things that we could do that are horrible and damaging and toxic, this is kind of over to the other end where yes, we should practice doing better things and, and things like that. But you gotta start somewhere. And so sometimes I think we because Heather actually pointed out to me one of my sayings that I never understood. I said all the time until she did. And then I was like, oh my God, it's everywhere. But it's, I always say it's the little things, but I, I firmly believe that the smaller foundational things are really what your core is. And so even though it seems inconsequential, it isn't. It's kind of the whole concept of the in- inception, that movie, right? But it might be something so small to be indeterminate to somebody else, but it kind of builds who you are. And so that's why I like to start with things that don't seem like they matter that much, because you're building a whole basis of 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 what is, you know, I don't even know what to use the word, but the whole core concept comes from something super small. And if you don't change it at that fundamental level, kind of like what you were saying before, not top down, but bottom up. And so for me, bottom up is so critical. And I, I really try to like, breathe that when possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's so many different corners that exclusionary language and images and stereotypes can exist. And it's usually where the people don't want to look. So like I've, I've gone through legal agreements 
because um, one, one of the things that I've been asked to do is, you know, okay, well here, just do we have anything exclusively or horribly stereotypical in this, you know, training or this legal agreement? And I'll go through and it's like, yes, every time you have a pronoun, it's he. And that's not a default setting <laughs> for humans is he. Like, so, you know, just remove that and put they and don't do, don't go to and replace. Actually read the document, actually go through because you're going to see something else in there. And exactly right. Everything speaks. So if I have this amazingly inclusive organization, but a third party provider has an app where the gender selections are male, female and other, that's problematic. And that's that's going to cause some eye rolling and some offense and you're going to lose customers. Yeah. Think about that. Other, like, I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I guess when I hear, I don't know that I would have thought about it necessarily if I read it, but just hearing it out loud, like it's like looking someone in the face and telling them they're the minority. It, yeah. It, that No, <laughs> like you're still a person. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. All right. So we will link everything in the bio. I've got your website. You've got two websites, Double Tall, and then I'm losing the second one right now. Doctor Paging Dr. Jen? <laughs> Paging Dr. Jen. Yeah, Paging I created Dr. that for the book. Okay. <laughs> and then um, well, your social links. Uh, is there anywhere else that you want people to connect with you other than your social links and your websites? Uh, no, the website has all the information about the work that I do. It has some re- additional resources as well Cool. Um, that uh, have been helpful for people. And uh, LinkedIn is, is always good. I am happy to make connections and talk and share and and give advice where I can. Yay. Thank you so, so much. This was as uh, amazing. It made me think a lot and I still have a lot more thinking to do. So that's the goal. (laughs) But so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for listening in today. We hope this episode inspired you to think more deeply. Don't forget to check the show notes where we will have all of Jen's information linked as well as all of our social media information. If you want to get your hands on a free signed copy of Jen's book, make sure to join the contest. We just want you to screenshot today's episode and tag us in your social media post as well as like our social media. All the links for that can be found again in the show notes. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed today are our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own fact-based conclusions. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss or or if you'd like to be a guest on our show, please reach out by email, info at Diversity on Fire, or leave us a voice note. The link for that can be found in the show notes. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. And please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. Um, everybody's at a different place and everybody has a different understanding. Mm-hmm.